0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Roland Clark, and I'm here today talking to Constantin Yordaki, who is a professor of history at Central European University and president of the International Association for Comparative Fascist Studies. He's also the author of The Fascist Faith of the Legion Archangel Michael in Romania, 1927 to 1941: Martyrdom and National Purification which has recently been published by Routledge. Welcome to the podcast, Constantin. Uh,
1: good afternoon, Roland, and thank you for inviting me.
0: So this is the second book that you've written about Romanian fascism. The first one was called Charisma, Politics and Violence, and that came out 19 years ago now. And the second book has another two decades' worth of research in it, including building on a lot of new archo- archival material that wasn't available uh, when you first wrote the book on this topic. So, apart from the fact that it's much thicker, what's new about this book? Why should someone who's already read Charisma, Politics and Violence pick up The Fascist Faith?
1: Well, yes, indeed. In 2004, I had published a shorter book on uh, inter romania discussing charisma, politics and violence. I was a graduate student at the time, so that was one of my first uh, major publications. That was... A pioneering book, I dare say, although it built mostly on secondary sources because, as you said, also archives are not as widely accessible as today, the book offers a new interpretation of the Iron Guard as a charismatic organization. Now, to be sure, there seemed to be a consensus at the time that Cornelio zella was a charismatic leader. However, charisma was mostly understood uh, at the time as personal attraction or magnetism, and no attempt was made to test Quadranu's leadership against Max Weber's theory of charismatic authority. Building on Weber's work, but also on the numerous interdisciplinary addition and reformulations of his theory, I have tried to reconceptualize the legion as a charismatic organization. So that book looked at the construction of Quadrano's charismatic cult, but also at the followers and their needs, Arguing that there was a charisma hunger in uh, post-war Romanian society and a search for a, sa- a savior after the traumatic events of the war, um, I also looked at the impact of the of this former of, char- of charismatic leadership on society, the adulation of Codrano by the legionary, but also his counter-charisma, which was marked by hostility or even repulsion from other strata of society. I also looked at the rivalry among the fascist charismatic authority on the one hand and other forms of charismatic authority in Romania at the time, such as monarchic charisma claimed by King Carol II, or religious charisma claimed by the Patriarch of the Romanian Orthodox Church. And I think that my my approach and conclusions in this uh, in that uh, book book have been uh, by and large uh, uh, accepted uh, adopted in the uh, scholarship. Um, on uh, on the legion
0: okay if you keep talking then we're going will go back
1: yeah so my approach and conclusions in that book have been accepted often tacitly i would say by the scholarship on the legion and there is now a wide consensus that the legion was a charismatic organization now my new book integrates my earlier conclusions and i do have a special chapter devoted to charismatic authority but does so with new empirical evidence. We know much more now than we used to know, well, in 2004 because of the English archival revolution. Um, most importantly, however, my new book does not limit the discussion to the fascist charisma, but provides a new theoretical framework for studying the relationship among fascism, religion, and political violence. My approach is integrative, trying to cluster concepts that have been analyzed separately so far, social panigenesis, messianic nationalism, totalitarianism, political religion, and charisma. In analytical terms, uh, my main aim is to integrate the charismatic dimension of fascism at the very core of the ideal type definition of the fascist minimum, and as a central dimension guiding empirical research. First, I argue that in in fascist studies, charisma is often improperly reduced to the issue of the leader cult and should be reconceptualized as a claim of authority that both legitimizes and organizes power. To this end, my approach strives to recover the original religious connotation of the concept of charisma. It should not be forgotten, of course, that the concept of charisma originates in the field of religion, being transplanted by Weber to the realm of politics. And following Weber, political analysts have further secularized the concept of charisma, but in the process I think they also lost sight of the religious connotations of the concept as a divinely bestowed, bestowed grace. Yeah. And I think this is crucial for understanding a charismatic type of authority. And second, I argue that we need to explore more thoroughly the social connotation of charismatic leadership. Um, Although Marx Weber accounted for the creation of charismatic community uh, communities and he also wrote on nationalism. He did not elaborate on the connection between charismatic authority and nationalism as an ideology and a social political movement. And I think that to date the multiple links between charismatic claims and national communities and ideologies have remained largely unexplored. Uh, to account for the fascist doctrine of national Salvation, I put forward the concept of charismatic nationalism based on a fusion between pretenses to charismatic authority and national messianism. Now, this might come as a surprise when we speak about charisma. uh, We think of uh, it as an attribute of a leader. But let's not forget that uh, in religious studies or also in political science, uh, we do have uh, references to charismatic churches So charismatic party organizations. I'm interested in the relation between charisma and nationalism. I define charismatic nationalism as a doctrine that regards the nation as an elect community of shared destiny living in a sacred homeland, which, based on a glorious past, claims a divine mission leading to salvation through sacrifice under the guidance of a charismatic leader. The concept of charismatic nationalism illuminates the nature of the holy or the sacred in nationalism, differentiating it from both established forms of traditional religions and modern secular ideologies. Yeah, so in a nutshell, there was uh, an early book focusing on charisma. This one is a much larger, more complex book, um, trying to integrate charisma into the larger fascist political faith as one of uh, as an integral element
0: of it. And the Romanian story is really just a case study for a much larger argument about fascism in general. Um, you say that the legionaries took Romanian civil religion and turned it into a fascist political faith. And here you're building on theories about fascism as a political religion that scholars have been refining ever since the 1930s. Can you walk us through exactly what a political religion is?
1: Yeah, this is probably one of the most challenging uh, aspects of my book, certainly its central claim. And uh, here I struggle, yes, uh, with uh, the the genealogy of this concept, political religion. And as uh, you will see from my answer, I also try to move uh, away from it, and I propose uh, some category which are called political phase. So generally, my book aims to provide a new theoretical framework for studying the relationship uh, among fascism, religion, and political violence. My approach is interdisciplinary, history, political science, international relations, a bit of anthropology, and also gender studies, with an emphasis on socio-cultural methodologies. And I like to think of my approach as being integrative, clustering concepts, Um, such as the ones that I mentioned before. I also see it as being comparative and also transnational, with a focus on the history of transfers and entanglements among fascist movements and regimes in Europe. I share common ground with the major culturalist interpretation of fascism, but my approach revisits three main issues that I, I believe are central to defining fascism. Uh, first is fascism's relation to the larger modern phenomenon of sacralizing politics in general and religion in particular, most manifest, I would think, in the tendency to create a fascist political face. The second is the totalitarian nature of fascism, and the third is fascism as a form of charismatic nationalism, as I stressed before. Now, um, I also arrived at a new definition of fascism based on my research on the iron guard, but also um, on uh, fascism in Central and Eastern Europe and in Europe in general. Now, I call this a working definition because again, uh, the definition is a tool and it should be tested against empirical evidence. So I claim that fascism is a revolutionary political phase, a form of charismatic nationalism aimed at the salvation and through various forms of regeneration of the patriarchal national community in this world. Fascist salvation was understood as the fulfillment of national characters through a return to the mythical origins of the nation through the terrestrial action of the charismatic leader and the paramilitary movement he organized. This type of salvation could be achieved by a concerted set of actions at four interrelated levels, individual, collective, state, and international. And I follow all this in, uh, in my in my work. They entail the rebirth and regeneration of the self through new forms of socialization, based on a new ethical code of conduct, meant to craft the new man and the new woman, and therefore the new fascist nation. The ethical, racial, or religious purification of the nation through the removal of the unwanted others. The reorganization of the state along totalitarian and corporatist lines, and fourth and last. The emancipation of the status of the titular nation, the dominant nation, Mm -hmm. in uh, inverted commas, in international affairs, through an apocalyptic battle against arch enemies. This definition differs from other existing definitions in the field. It needs claim that fascism is first and foremost a salvific political faith, a theology of liberation centered on the myth of salvation from decadence. In the importance assigned to the role played by the charismatic leader in forging the fascist community of sacrifice and in bringing salvation to the national community. And it's in its emphasis on the religious technologies of the self, uh, with a word borrowed from Foucault, incorporated into the fascist anthropological revolution meant to create a new man, having at the forefront the idea of violent sacrifice. Now, I deliberately use the word faith over than, uh, rather than religion uh, for several reason, uh, reasons. And here you see my first differentiation with uh, political religious approach. First faith is in fact the word used by fascists to define their political creed. Um, fascist leaders asserted time and again the religious nature of their movement. Even Mussolini, a politician, which was notorious for, being, uh, for having um, Atheistic socialist credentials pointed out in 1932 that the fascist conception of life is a religious one, in which man is viewed in his immanent relation to a higher law. However, fascist ideologues were also very careful in distinguishing between established religions and their own political faith. And again, "faith" is the word used in the Romanian Iron Guard credinta. It is also used um, in Italian, Fede, and it's also a key concept uh, in, uh, in the German National Socialism, Politischen Glauben. Um, it is, uh, for example, it'll be interesting to look um, at the 1925 Manifest of the Fascist Intellectuals. We define Italian fascism as, I quote, an emerging violent faith, again, Fede. Which conceived of politics, I quote again, as a training ground for self-denial, self-sacrifice. End of quotation. And the concept of fede in the discourse of Italian fascism is mirrored by the concept of politische Glauben in, in the political language of national uh, German national socialism, and again, as I said, of Credinza in the political vocabulary of the Romanian Legion. So I stay close to the fascist vocabulary, and I think it's important here. To to
0: know the uh, the language, the political language they use. Yeah, yeah it, it makes quite a difference. Um, thinking specifically about what the about the language they're using, one of the really interesting things about the Legion, the Archangel Michael, is this idea of the Archangel, um, and this comes from Colin, Cornelio Codrano, the leader of the Legion. In his memoirs, he wrote that he came up with the the name. When he was in prison in 1923 praying in front of an icon of the archangel and he had a sort of epiphany um, but in the book you suggest that the reality was probably much more complex than this what are other possible places god I knew might have gotten the idea of the archangel michael from
1: yeah this is an important uh, issue an important that i've dealt with extensively in uh, in in my book um, most um, uh, writers um, of the, most researchers of the Iron Guard uh, ideology uh, thought that this is a, uh, the cult of Michael the, uh, Michael the Archangel is a religious cult and it was uh, borrowed by the legionaries from the Orthodox Church. Uh, I look at this in a different, uh, from a different perspective. I actually discovered that this was a, this, uh, the cult of the Archangel Michael was uh, put forward by uh, romantic thinkers, nationally thinkers, especially Ioan Heliade Radulescu in the for, uh, second quarter of the 19th century. And it was coupled with um, the cult of Michael the Brave. So these two cults together meant, uh, were the cult of uh, national union, the desired union at the time between the Principality of Moldova, Wallachia, and, uh, and Transylvania. But in a romantic, palingenetic fashion, uh, this double cult also meant the resurrection of, uh, of Romania, of modern Romania in Enuki as a united country, but, um, but also with a new socio-political uh, system. That system at the time was democratic. So we speak about the 1848 revolution and the idea of a democratic uh, Romania in a democratic uh, Europe. But later on, this cult uh, was uh, took um, um, conservative uh, uh, form. And I show in my work the complex genealogy of this double cult of uh, Michael the Archangel and also of... um, michael the brave throughout the 19th century up to world war one I. I don't have time to go into details is to say that uh, uh, romania's uh, preparation for entering world war one were really done under the symbolic edges of uh, archangel uh, uh, michael who was the same patron of uh, the romanians as the elect nation and that uh, there were many interesting experiments in the uh, in military patriotic education, for example, at the Dalu Monastery in uh, Bucharest in where the skull of Michael the Brave is kept. And so um, it was not by chance uh, that Codrano perpetuated this uh, uh, symbol in a new uh, form. He was a pupil at this uh, military school uh, Dalu. Uh, his father educated him in a uh, uh, well, a religious nationalist uh, uh, creed, uh, and um, as a graduate of the Dal monastery, he took that spirit with him, but transformed it into a new key in you know, what I wanted to uh, show, in a, turn it into a fascist creed. So here we have this transformation from uh, uh, of this cult, the genetic cult of uh, Romanians as the Latin nation. From a romantic democratic creed to a conservative and then a fascist uh, political phase in uh, the interwar period. Um, Yeah, I tried to understand uh, what was the role of the cult of um, uh, Archangel Michael and Michael the Brave uh, in the legionary ideology. And um, I thought, um, I found that this was really linked with the cult of national authenticity. Um, this cult rested mainly on the idea of the existence of a predestined communion between the Romanians as the elect nation and their national homeland. To assure the salvation of the nation as an organic, physical, material and spiritual entity, the legionary ideology and ritual practice encompass two main axes, originating from the process of uh, sacrificing politics initiated in the 19th century, the cult of the Archangel Michael and of the as- uh, ancestral land. So the first axis, that of Archangel Michael, conferred upon the legionary ideology, a transcendental dimension linking it to the holy and the sacred. And yes, as you said, Godranum explicated the origins of the legionary cult of uh, archangel in various ways, attributing it to either a divine revelation he had in or to a collective vision of the leading uh, nucleus of um, activists that uh, formed the legion. Both inspired by an icon of the archangel from the Bokaresh Monastery, where these uh, youngsters were uh, imprisoned in 1923. In a first account put forward at the student congress in 1927, Quadranu claimed that collective prayer in front of the icon of the archangel in the church of the Bokaresh Monastery helped the group identify their traitor, uh, the traitor that um, gave them, uh, revealed the uh, Plot against uh, um, the so called anti Jewish plot, student anti Jewish plot, to the police. Seeing that the divinity helped us recall Codrano, we decided to proclaim Archangel Michael the protector of our useful fight. Uh, in his autobiography, Codrano attributed the symbolism of the movement to a collective brainstorming of the leading nucleus of activists at the Bucharest Monastery. Um, To be sure, the cult of the Archangel Michael was very popular in the Eastern Orthodox Commonwealth,
0: Uh, Michael
1: being widely venerated as a saint, fighting the infidels and protecting the virtuous. And uh, we have other um, examples of the political utilization of Michael's cult. For example, there's a striking similarity with Russia's League of the Archangel Michael, which split in 1907 from the Union of Russian People. Uh, movement which is generally regarded, regarded by some scholars as Europe's first fascist organization. I contend that none of these movements had religious roots, but were linked to the process of sacralizing politics around the monarchy. Russia's League of the Archangel Michael was linked to the cult of the Romanov dynasty and the Archangel as their divine protector, while the Romanian Legion of, uh, Legion's cult of the Archangel Michael was directly linked to the traditional Romantic nationalism initiated, as I said, by Eliade in the second quarter of the 19th century, and then further developed uh, King Karol I, and institutionalized at the Dallum Monastery the military school in 1912. So I think that the movement symbolism and genesis uh, suggest that Quadrano internalized the charismatic scenario of uh, Eliade Redulescu and his uh, First National epic poem called Mihaiada, having as main components uh, the hero's prophetic dream, the icon of the revelation, the cult of Archangel Michael, linked with Michael the Brave, and the divine mission of bringing unity to the Romanian people. So Codranu perpetuated this double uh, uh, cult as a palingenetic cult of the Romanians, but again, in a new form. The um, work of leading ideologues um, of the legion contains encoded clues hinting to the continuity between the legionary intero-cult of Archangel Michael and the romantic salvation dual-cult of Michael the Brave and his uh, uh, patron Archangel Michael. I looked at uh, many pieces of evidence. For example, there's, a, there's an article uh, by Ion Moza which reviews the miracles made by Archangel Michael and he speaks in a very, in a veiled yet very evident way uh, about the um, symbolic bond between, uh, between Michael the Brave, the um, unifier, and Archangel Michael uh, that exists in the Romanian national ideology. Uh, this allusion and the visit the founding members of the legion paid to the battlefield of Moreshesht and the cathedral of coronation of Baia, which are both uh, uh, which both had um, Archangel Michael as their saint patron. Um, proved that they were well aware of the pre- and post-war genealogy and symbolism of the dual cult of Michael the Brave and Archangel Michael in Romanian national ideology. It's very interesting, however, to see, to see that uh, this link remain, remained coded in the ideology on purpose, and it was thus a bit hidden to the uninitiated.
0: As well as the Archangel Michael, um, they also talked about ancestors and soil. Um, the name of their first newspaper is Pământul strămoșesc, or the ancestral land. Um, what role did the cult of the ancestors in the soil play in legionary ideas?
1: Yeah, so the central cult of the legion ideology, the central axis of the legionary ideology, was the cult of the of Archangel Michael as a symbol of divine revelation and protection. This he was, as I showed. Uh, linked with the cult of the unity, political unity of all Romanians in a single state, but also linked to the cult of the polygenesis of modern Romania, which meant a revolutionary transformation leading to the um, uh, establishment, to, the build, to building or crafting the new man and the new fascist nation. Uh, the second axis, ideological axis of the legion, was the cult of the uh, ancestral land of the nation, The cult inspired the name of the official magazine of the movement, as you also said, Pamunt or Stromoshes, the ancestral land. It's very interesting, the etymology and meanings of this title are key to understanding regional ideology. The word Pamunt is of Indo European origin and means earth, land, or soil. It's derivated, for example, pamuntanire, or Unpamuntenire means becoming of the place, going native later meaning also nat- naturalization to Romanian citizenship and in another book I really look at the uh, genealogy of this uh, very interesting concept. Uh, another important derivative of the word is the expression meaning the customs of the land or customary moors. Uh, the word Stromošesk is also derived from the, from the word mosh again another polysemantic word of dacian origin. Although the original meaning of the word mosh is that of an old man the term was extended symbolically to ancestors and, father, uh, and forefathers in the form stromosh, meaning blood relative in a direct line, the primordial for, uh, forerunner or forefather of a family of people. Um, and another derivative coming closer to, to the question uh, from the word mosh is moshe, meaning landed estate, but also motherland, and moshnan, meaning free landowning peasant. Uh, so, um, the cult of the ancestral land is, I think, an expression of the phenomenon of the territorialization of nationalism. This ideological axis gave the legion an earthly dimension, linking it, linking it to the cult of the ancestors and to the cult of the martyrs. And claimed numerous times that according to a God-given law, the land is the nation's basis for existence. And uh, the Legion advanced its own views on the ideal territorial and, and the borders of the nation by claiming historical rights over particular territory and declaring it as an indivisible entity. The ancestral land was presented as a cradle of, cradle of the ethnogenesis and Christianization of the Romanian people, with legionary propaganda emphasizing uh, the continuity of the Romanian people on the same territory without interruption and the symbolism of the region is very illustrative in this respect uh, the cover of for example illustrates this tomb represents these two main axes of the Legionary ideology you have in the center the venerated icon of uh, saint michael above is there is a swastika which was already used by the radical right in romania in the early 20s and then was also adopted by the legion and then um, on the left side you have a quotation from uh, the Romanian poet George koch book, glorifying paying sacrifice, so again, going back to the sacralization of politics in the mid 19th century, in the second half of 19th century. And then um, on the right side of the picture, I have a quotation from the Bible, which is attributed to Saint uh, Michael. And this is uh, taken from a depiction of Archangel Michael on the door of the shrine in the Cathedral of the Union in Alba Iulia. To, to drive this connection home, to, to make it more uh, striking, I actually found the memoirs of Iliad Curnea, uh, one of the founding members of the Legion, uh, in which he says that uh, four of the founding members visited the Cathedral of uh, Coronation in January 1924, and they recall the strong impression their visit made, made on them, and also especially the depiction of Archangel Michael from the Coronation Cathedral. And so uh, there's a direct connection there again with the secularisation of politics in the 19th century during and after World War I and then the Legion of Archangel uh, Michael. And so the territorialization of nationalism and regional ideology was made, was made evident by the fact that the cover of the magazine reproduced under the icon of the Archangel also a map of Greater Romania indicating major cities. And if you look at the cities, they all have black spots showing the proportion of Jews to the total population of each city in an attempt to to document the alleged Jewish invasion of Greater Romania. These invaded areas were regarded as Cangrines in the nation's ancestral land, in violation of God's law. Um, Well, they were not uh, unique in this uh, representation, there was much talk uh, at the time uh, about the problem of the cities being taken over by foreigners, um, there are many articles by Octavian Goga, uh,
0: yeah.
1: which shows a clear influence uh, there. Yeah. Um, so the Cult of the Ancestral Land was an attempt to re-root the national community in time and space by presenting its habitat as the land of history and destiny of the chosen people. And this um, attempt was expressed in two ways. The first one was to develop a form of ethno nature by asserting the nation's right of a predestined and thus well-differentiated national homeland, bordered by rivers, mountains, sea, and other natural demarcation. Thus, in effect, any and consequently appropriating that habitat. The second was, was the naturalization of historical landscape of the nation, presenting them as an organic predestined, part of the natural setting of the respective community. Um, yeah, and the centralization of the national land was done mostly through the veneration of the ancestors' graves, but, as also, but also through the cult of the peasantry and its organic link to the land. The cult of the earth's legionary ideology and its derivatives the cult of the fatherland and the cult of the ancestors and the cult of the heroes were rooted in popular traditions. In the Romanian popular mythology, all significant rites of passage, such as birth, marriage, and death, were directly related to and are strongly connected to the earth as a rites of one and the same cult of the earth. indigenous legionary ideology, the cult of the earth was linked mostly with funeral rites and ritual, rituals. And so I could say that together, the two vertical and horizontal axes of uh, legionary ideologies united in a potent symbolism, the earthly and the divine. And the two axes were also an expression of the religious historicism, which roots with roots in... Uh, romantic panigenetic uh, historical ideology and they were meant to unite the pre-christian muslimation roots of the romanian people with christianity and manifest destiny leading to to redemption and then to salvation in a fascist scheme
0: so yeah when they talk about the archangel michael and they talk about soil uh, and ancestors they're not just throwing these words around they've actually got a really complex web of meaning for them um in both of your books, you talk a lot about charisma as an analytic category. Um, how does Kodranu move from being just another charismatic leader um, to becoming the captain?
1: Yes, this is a very important aspect of uh, the Legion's uh, history. My major, I could say that the major innovation of the Legion, specific to the era of inter politics, was the central role assigned to the charismatic leader in the transformation of society. Now, of course, charismatic authority was not a new phenomenon in Romanian politics. Uh, the romantic tradition of messianic nationalism has uh, already established the role of intellectuals and nationalist activists as uh, apostles of the regeneration, having as uh, emblematic figures the professor Georgia uh, George Lazar, who came from Transylvania to Wallachia, the poet Joenelia Dredulescu, to whom I referred uh, earlier, and also the historian politician Nikolai Iorga, among others. And they all claim to, to have charismatic authority of some sort, um, Eliade especially capitalizing on the role of uh, poets and artists in general. Uh, and uh, having divine inspiration and then shaping uh, uh, a nation uh, cultural profile. However, in the interim period, the conjunct- conjunction of state building and mass politics produced an explosive form of charismatic nationalism. Um, The legion managed to give a new form and content to to this doctrine of messianic uh, nationalism. Its ideology adopted ideas of the predestined role of the youth in general and and of the new post-war generation in particular for the radical transformation of society. It also merged the idea of generational messianism with the cult of Quadrano, who was presented as a charismatic leader invested with a divine mission to save the nation from decay. The principle of charismatic leadership matched the organization of the movement. The Legion exercised a new type of charismatic authority, demanding from its members total and unconditional devotion to the leader, uh, consecrated in oath-taking ceremonies. And the Legion also promoted new forms of political organization and activism shaped by paramilitary values and based on new mechanisms of socialization and education and aimed at the creation of the new fascist men and woman. Yeah, I, as I said, I devote um, an entire chapter to the creation of uh, Quadranus Charismatic cult and to the technologies of the self employed by the legion to reshape the identity of its followers. I argue that as a social phenomenon, charismatic authority is a form of behavioral or uh, expectancy confirmation, namely a self-fulfilling prophecy in which people's political beliefs from them to act in ways that allegedly lead to the self confirmation of their expectations. Now, this confirmation works in both directions from the leader to the masses and from the masses to the leader. Um, as mentioned earlier, I employ I employed the concept of charisma to denote not simply Codran's capacity of attraction, but to further describe an explicit means to legitimize and organize the totalizing power of the Legion. And in my book I explore the conscious construction of Codrano's cult by paying particular particular attention to the publication of his autobiographical works, uh, publication of autobiographical works by other fascist leaders, as well as key texts that articulate a charismatic leadership. Especially Codranos for My Legionaries and the way uh, you
0: know,
1: being written for the movement and creating the uh, roadmap for uh, for the uh, for converting uh, um, other potential followers, and uh, also yeah, Hitler's Mein Kampf as a, as a, one of the inspirations to to this to this book. And I also discussed three main laboratories for the creation of the new fascist man: the nest, which were the most basic um, units of the movement, and the way leaders socialized in this nest the prison, because uh, legionaries were in a constant fight with the authorities, and they all served time in prison. And in fact, uh, the prison was considered to be an important laboratory for uh, forging a legionary, and the war camps. Um, internalized by legionaries, this scenario salvation uh, based on the qualification of the charismatic leader, uh, leader provided the basis for a collective belief system and served uh, as the foundation of the fascist political
0: faith, as a distinct subculture in, in interwar Romaine. Um, So if someone told me, come and join the Legion and you can obey me unquestionably and then spend time in prison, it doesn't seem very appealing. Um, why did people join the Legion? Did everyone join for the same reasons or are there different factors influencing students versus intellectuals, workers, or peasants?
1: Yeah, this is a key question, a key question for politics in the period, and also a key question for politics today, when you also see radicalization to the far right. Uh, No, I have to say that uh, my book approaches the history of the Legion at three analytical levels. I study the ideology of the movement. I also study the political evolution and social composition of the Legionary movement and also the national legionary regime. So I look at the TRIAD ideology movement regime, and I think it's very important that we don't stay only at the, in the realm of history of ideas, but we also look at uh, the followers and their needs and their motivations for joining the legion, and also to understand them um, what they got out of all this experience. Uh, my main emphasis is on the emergence of the doctrine of national salvation during the 19th century and its crystallization into a new fascist political faith in the interwar period at the level of ideology and practice. However, I also evaluate, as I said, the Legion's success in the fascistization of the masses as well as its political legacy over time during the communist regime and also its rebirth in, uh, in post-communist times. And especially in fa- chapter five, I discussed the social impact of the fascist phase on society. I explored techniques of disseminating the legionary ideology and I said the social support and electoral impact of the legionary phase among various social strata. I have to say that I'm very fond of social history in, in my work and I plead for new, new social cultural approaches to fascism. So as I said, I shared, the. Uh, the uh, common ground with uh, cultural approaches to fascism by also seeing that we should bring back um, this uh, sociological tradition in, uh, in looking at, um, at the mass appeal of fascism. Um, my approach to the social basis of fascism is uh, based on um, several premises. First, I argue that the emergence of fascist movements is not tied to a particular social class, but incorporates members from various class uh, strata of society. I think this is very important because fascism was originally seen as a, uh, um, well, a middle-class phenomenon, but especially the uh, expression of the extremism of the petty bourgeoisie. Second, I think that in order to understand the social support of fascism, we should not focus on uncovering the supposedly direct and immutable relationship between class positions and radical political attitudes but explore processes of radicalization, and I emphasize processes of becoming radical, and the creation of a violent counterculture through new forms of socialization and community building. And third, I also posit that social identities and relations are not static, but always in flux and motion as a function of multiple factors relating to um, psychological predispositions, Position on the social led- ladder, media society, cultural values, gender identities, gender roles, and political context, among others. So, to grasp the mul- multiple entanglements among these, what I call, complicating categories, I employ a social-cultural approach, which recon- which reconceptualizes the social and the cultural de- dimensions of human action as inseparable from each other, and this is especially important for fascism, I think, because historians either look at the realm of uh, history of ideas and then deal with ideologies or, or deal with the mass appeal of fascism. But I have to put the two together because ideas do not exist in a vacuum, but uh, they are influenced by social practices and at the same time they, they shape um, uh, social practices. So my general conclusion is that the social trigger of the process of radicalization leading to fascism were feelings of collective relative deprivation. And numerous sociological works pointed out that social movements of protest are not generated by material poverty per se, by but by a perceived gap between social reality and expectations. In other words, feelings of deprivation are not an objective indicator of, uh, of the standard of living of a given actor or social category, but subjective feelings of being disadvantaged in relation to a reference individual or group. And this we can verify in, in Romania, you know, unlike what uh, Eugene Weber said, and uh, the regions that uh, uh, were legionerized uh, earlier were not the most, the poorest uh, regions of Romania, but regions that uh, actually experienced uh, sudden modernization. And also, as Michael Mann showed, there were also regions uh, that were not uh, ethnically homogeneous, but they, uh, you had um, at least two other ethnic groups. So, multi ethnic regions in which uh, in Romanians, as uh, quote unquote a titular nation, could uh, uh, refer themselves to their status to that of um, minorities. Uh, and then um, yeah, develop such feelings of relative deprivation. Um, now, works on intergroup competitive relationship point out to the interplay among feelings of fraternal deprivation, collective set, and racial prejudices leading to resentment-based political mobilization against rival groups. And so, can discourses of collective relative deprivation capitalize on notions of legitimate expectations of a virtuous group that are unjustly and illicitly blocked by rival groups. Collective feelings of relative disadvantages toward discontent, frustration, and anger often generating revivalist movement of change. And I think uh, this uh, relative, the relative deprivation theory illuminates the social, the, um, psychosocial dynamics of the process of stigma radicalization in Romania as well. In my book, I show how the post-war upheaval provided structural conditions for the emergence of social movements of protest. The process of nationalizing the state in into Romania generated as a side effect the confrontation between the hegemonic official culture, and, or culture of victory, and radicalized student counterculture. And in this context, a small but fanatical group of radical nationalists managed to translate student discontent into ideological grievances Setting the basis of a violent youth movement, militating for salvation through terrorist uh, revenge. Sociologically, this counterculture can be defined following a new Bavarian political perspective as a charisma of resentment or a protest ideology of underprivileged social groups. And so coming closer to your question, I argue that as a social movement, the legion was at its peak a catch-all party incorporating diverse elements of society, among which the most important were peasants, students, blue and white color workers, members of the rural and urban intelligentsia, mostly teachers and priests, low rural and urban bourgeoisie, and members of uh, the aristocracy. And I, uh, I, you know, I deal with all these um, groups in the book and with their, motive, their social position and motivation for joining Religion. But generally, I would say that while greatly affected by, by the post-war upheaval, these social strata were united by the feelings of being excluded from the full benefits of the ongoing social and political transformation. The unfulfilled rising expectations led to acute feelings of relative deprivation. And I think the legion's political faith centered or centered on, on those charismatic claims function, functioned as a unifying cement among these heterogeneous social strata, offering them a compensatory salvific hope. So the legion's populist message managed to mobilize socially disenfranchised and economically impoverished groups who perceived themselves as the losers of the parliamentary regime, but also dynamic urban strata of the population who while advancing on the social ladder fell nevertheless hampered in their social mobility blocked by rival groups. So an in inner di- group dynamic based on radicalization and permanent mobilization, the Legion managed to forge a new political consciousness for this aggregate community, obscuring internal cleavages and social conflict and directing them toward outsiders. The Legion's nativist discourse capitalized on the autochthonous rights of the Moldavians. Um, Kodrano came from Northern Moldova, and so his first discourse was really Focusing on the Moldavians, but then also on the Romanians in general, or even on the Christians uh, Mm -hmm. often including uh, here also the Greek Catholics and the Catholics as the referent object against the Jews and their Romanian accomplices denounced as invaders of the national space, corruptors of moors and parasites of societal resources. Thus, I could say that while creating consensus within its own community, the legion generated new conflicts between its fanatical followers and the country's political establishment and ethnic
0: minorities. Mm. Um, another thing that historians often talk about when they talk about the legion is how often legionaries spoke about martyrs and martyrdom. But one thing you've done in this book is you're able to show the connection between that language about martyrdom and the cult of the fallen soldiers in the First World War. So what happened to the national cult about the war then to transform it into beliefs about salvation through sacrifice?
1: Yeah, that was uh, probably a counterintuitive uh, connection that I discovered. Uh, yeah, let me integrate this into the larger picture. So in my book, I argue that the legionary ideology can be defined as a panigenetic political phase of a a theological type called Legionarism. Legionarism. This is what they called it. This political faith was molded in the panigenic tradition of Romantic messianism. The ultimate aim was to bring about a new covenant between God and the Romanians as the elect people. The prototype of this religious scenario of salvation was the Passion of Christ. Legionaries claimed to emulate the behavioral model of Imitatio Christi based on the belief that the ethical guidance and suffering of a charismatic leader can lead humanity on the path to salvation. The central claim of the new fascist faith was its ability to transform the suffering and violent self-sacrifice of the legionaries as the chosen warriors of a post-war messianic generation into central events of all historical significance, leading to national, but also to, uh, ultimately to universal salvation now how was salvation to be achieved uh, i showed in my book that the legion employs three main sacrificial strategies for what they call the re-evangelizing the romanian people in the new faith the first one was the appropriation of the cult of the fallen soldiers meant to resacralize the nation in fascist values the second was terrorist missions as a means to promote the heroization of its own members through violent sacrifice Leading to martyrdom, so this is the man, this is a way to manufacture uh, fascist martyrs. And the third is uh, sanctification through a heroic fight for Christianity, in an attempt to place the new would-be religion at the core of Romania's foreign policy, and to link it with a transnational crusade against Judeo-Bolshevism. See here the demonstrative participation in, uh, in the Spanish Civil War and the sacrifice of time Marine. So these sacrifice, uh, sacrificial practices created a panoply of legionary heroes, martyrs, and saints, which the legionaries attempted to insert into the broader national and Christian Orthodox pantheons. These strategies were part of a comprehensive attempt to appropriate the main symbols of Romanian nationalism, presenting legionarism not only as a continuation, but also as a culmination of the historical development of the Romanian people, leading to salvation and redemption. And so the first, and I would say the most important strategy uh, of the Legion to re-sacralize the nation was to appropriate and amplify the cult of the fallen soldiers. Um, This action was conceived as a prelude to the movement, producing its own martyrs for the fatherland, with the aim of inserting them into the national pantheon of war heroes. Together, the two campaigns were meant to place the Legionaries at the center of Romania's national history, as the most legitimate continuators of a tradition of heroism and self-sacrifice. Um, this uh, plan was revealed uh, by many leading uh, ideologists. Uh, for example, the poet and commander, Radu demetrescu in a lecture delivered in uh, May 1936, uh, argued that uh, no ideal could be reached without sacrifice. In post-war Romania, he claimed the only new sacrifices made were, I coat. quote, the graves of the legionaries who placed themselves in line with the 800,000 dead in the Great War. Um, So the the legion attempted to take over the cult of the fallen soldiers in the First World War. This was part of a long tradition of uh, instrumentalizing sacrifice in warfare and its mourning for purposes of political mobilization. On the one hand, the legion consciously emulated practices of um, politicizing death which were um, had already been developed in modern Romania. On the other hand, its action resembled similar campaigns conducted by the fascist movements and regimes in interwar Europe. I think uh, obviously the most elaborated policies of this kind took place in fascist Italy and Nazi Germany. Both regimes exhumed um, the bodies of fallen soldiers in the Great War on a massive scale, placing them in new ossuaries built on former battlegrounds. and uh, the Legion did the same. Uh, they uh, excavated uh, uh, ossuaries of uh, uh, dead soldiers and uh, built shrines. Again, an attempt to, to sacralize, but also appropriate and take over the, the national uh, land.
0: Um, so this, as you say in the book, the cult of martyrdom, it develops and it gets quite strong uh, in 1937 with the death of Jon Mozza and Vasily Marin. But then in 1938, the legions banned, Codrano was murdered, and the state starts arresting and murdering legionaries. What does that do to the cult of martyrdom?
1: Yes, well, uh, the legion is a very interesting um, example of uh, the routinization of the charismatic leader. We spoke about the charismatic nature of fascism. That means that fascist movements and also regimes are highly dependent on their leader and the physical death of the leader. Most often leads to, to the termination of that regime too, see the of Mussolini or of Hitler. Well, the Legion is an example of a successful routinization of a charisma and the transformation of a, well, uh, and the cult of a dead leader. Probably we have to look at Austria and Dolfus, the cult of post Homos cult of Dolphus, to see a similar uh, phenomenon. Um, Yeah, as I said, um, the practices of venerating the word dead and of making the national territory, marking the national territory, were to culminate during the short regionary rule. Uh, Then the Legion could actually unfold its cultural policies um, focused uh, on uh, the politics of uh, burial and reburial. The Legion assembled their own cemeteries of the Martyrs, strategically placing them near sites for the commemoration of the fallen soldiers. Sometimes it's very interesting, sometimes the graves of the legionaries and even their bones, the bones of the legionaries and the bones of the fallen soldiers in the First World War, were consciously mixed. Um, So to, to show, to emphasize the continuity. Uh, yeah, the legionaries also conducted a friendly campaign of building crucifixes and other funeral monuments all over the country. These campaigns promoted an ethical ethnical and mythical history, a form of, yeah, we could say, mytho history of fascism, combining a textbook version of, uh, of national history with Dacian, Deco, Romano, Christian, and even popular mythologies uh, in a peculiar legionary national um, epic. Um, So uh, we have a massive uh, number of um, uh, legionary funerals during um, the legionary rule. These funerals were conceived as the last and most important stage in the full articulation and mass dissemination of the legionary phase, and were invested therefore with a complex set of political as well as cosmic meanings. First, they occurred immediately after the establishment of the national um, legionary state, So these herbarias fulfilled a central political function as part of a larger campaign aimed at delegitimizing the previous order of the royal dictatorship and at legitimizing the um, legendary doctrine of national salvation. This funeral does served as a rites of passage, making not only the deceased transition from this world to the next, the other world, but also from one political regime to another. Secondary burials provided an ideological and ritual basis for the new political regime by articulating discourses of divine election, victimhood, and martyrdom leading to national salvation. The main function of these ceremonies was to rehabilitate truth and to reinterpret history by condemning the royal dictatorship and implicitly the entire post-1918 liberal regime as illegitimate. Instead, they proclaimed a new regime of sacrality, which endowed life with a new political meaning. Uh, by cutting ties with the past, they were meant to signal the entrance into a new historical era and to reorder time and space by resacralizing the nation and by reasserting, reassessing its immortality. They were also meant to redeem the honor of the legionaries and, by extension, of the Romanian nation, and to thus reconcile it with divinity, history, and nature. And third, the rebarial ceremonies were also considered a central components of the legendary psychological revolution, aiming at the creation of the new man, leading to the inner spiritual transformation of the nation. They redefined the meaning of heroism, patriotism, and self-sacrifice, and glorified the, sac- the fascist f- practice of suicidal terrorism as acts act of purification, similar to the martyrdom of primitive Christianity leading to the salvation of the nation. It's very interesting they do refer obsessively to the spirit of primitive Christianity and uh, to the um, early Christian martyrs. And um, fourth, ribario ceremonies were also means by which the legionary attempted to forge the new fascist nation. They promoted an alternative of, version of national identity based on fascist moral and ethical values. Um, ribar ceremonies were also elaborate expression of the fascist aesthetization of politics, serving as effective ways of mass mobilization in support of fascism. They involved sound, that is, military bands, religious choirs, traditional bugles, visual symbols, flags, uniforms, green billboards, slogans, giant portraits of the martyrs, especially of Quadrano, modern means of transportation, such as the train or uh, automobiles, mortuary trains, as well as a complex set of national, religious, and military rights and rituals. So, yeah, these events were not simply propaganda campaigns or mere exercising the fascist of politics. And, and it's very important to know that uh, Sima, the new leader of the Legion after the death of Kodreanu, regarded the... Uh, <coughs> regarded uh, these uh, funerals as uh, the most important task in justifying the Legion's uh, accession to power because they provided the political liturgy for converting the nation to the fascist face as the legion was uh, at the uh, at the time the fourth fascist party to access political power in europe and Romania became also an integral member of the axis alliance these ceremonies acquired also on international political importance be being used as sites for reaffirming the transnational value of sacrifice for the fascist cause and the displaying fascist unity and solidarity across europe and i emphasize this uh, aspect uh, with the funeral of modern marine and uh, the journey from uh, from spain to to romania uh, and also by um, looking very attentively at the fascist uh, funeral ceremonies during their rule especially of codrano which is, of course uh, the most important, but also for the fascist martyrs, and uh, always emphasizing the the participation of the representatives you know, of the Axis powers in, in this ceremony.
0: To um, so take a step back in time, so the National Legionary State is really clearly fascist, and it's doing all these reburial reburials and the massive parades, and just sort of reimagining life, the nation, time. Um, but what about King Carol II's royal dictatorship? Was that a fascist dictatorship, do you think? Or how would you just characterize its mass mobilization, the militarism, the religious language that that regime used?
1: Yes, yeah, so I think this regime is very interesting and it's understudied and it deserves more attention. I do devote a chapter uh, on, in my book to to this uh, to the royal dictatorship of Carol uh, II. This was established in February 1938. Carol II uh, was encouraged by political crisis caused by the 1937 elections. Um, he decided to block the legion's bid to power by pursuing his own plans to institute a regime of personal authority. Well, this was called Dictatura Regala or the royal dictatorship. It's interesting, first of all, to look at other forms or other examples of royal dictatorships. These were very common in the Balkans during the interwar period You can look at Alexander I, Yugoslavia, Boris III in, in Bulgaria. For, um, the establishment was usually an ad hoc response by the monarchy and royal factions of traditional elites to structure the crisis. I mean, the aim of royal dictatorship was to restore political stability by curtailing pluralism and antagonistic party politics, and by blocking the radical rights access to power. To gain legitimacy and to effectively neutralize fascism, in addition to activating traditional elements of rural authority, these regimes also employed fascist trappings, such as the cult of the leader, the indoctrination of the youth, and its uh, role monitoring single mass organization, an emphasis uh, of the on the propaganda themes of salvation and the redemption of the nation. And such trappings were also intended to make this regime appear modern and dynamic. in tune with the new style of modern of mass politics that was emerged in uh, into Europe, especially in the second half of uh, the 1930s. Initially Karl II presented his dictatorship as a temporary suspension of uh, suspension of political pluralism, meant to restore stability. However, the King soon experimented this new form of charismatic leadership with techniques of mass mobilization, with um, other fascist trappings, such as the doctrine of integral nationalism, uh, which eventually led to a peculiar para-fascist regime as a hybrid combination between fascism and the conservative uh, right. So I would say that although this is a very short period, from February 1938 to September 1940. Uh, it is uh, a period uh, marked by many shifts and turns. At um, the beginning, the regime was um, well, um, um, a pluralist in, uh, in, uh, in nature in the sense that it wanted to bring about uh, government of national union. It was obviously a large anti-fascist coalition really directed against uh, against the legion. But later, uh, as we move more into 1939, the regime uh, took a more authoritarian uh, drive. Uh, And then by the end of the royal dictatorship, it uh, turned into a para-fascist movement. And I think it's uh, very illustrative in this respect to look at uh, um, well, um, the legislation of the regime, but mostly uh, the transformation of its, uh, it's uh, a single party and a unique party, the Front of National Rebirth, which in June 1940 was renamed the Party of the Nation, Partido Nazi, Nazi Uni by a royal decree. De- decree. Uh, and so this marks the regime transition from authoritarianism to totalitarianism. And this transition was really explicit. So Article 1 of the decree for the creation of the party of the nation stated, and I quote, the front of national rebirth becomes a unique and totalitarian party under the name of the party of the nation, end of quotation. I want to emphasize this because uh, usually in Romania, um, it is uh, often considered that uh, fascism came to power in uh, September 1940 with Legion and uh, General Antonescu. But here we have, in the summer of 1940, under the royal dictatorship, uh, a single party and uh, claim to a totalitarian regime. Uh, and so this uh, change was maybe not um, uh, very clearly grasped by the contemporaries. But I looked at uh, the memoirs of Constantin Argetuyano. He really noted in his diary that after a few days of confusion, he says people begin to grasp the radical and revolutionary regime change that occurred with the transformation by the Front of National Rebirth into the Party of the Nation. End of quotation. And so this far-reaching political change was also evident in Karl II's most controversial act, which is. The amnesty and renewed the tent of collaboration with the legion. After he crashed the legion, after he um, eliminated uh, its uh, leadership, uh, he then uh, wanted to reconcile with the legion um, backstay negotiations uh, in July 1940, and then some of um, some renewed legionaries were called into a government led by Yonji Gurtu, including the main leader And so, and the last stage, in this process of fascistization of the royal dictatorship was the promotion of anti-Semitic measures to the level of official state policies. And of course, here we have to refer to the denaturalization of Romanian Jews that was started in January 1938, um, by the end of which about uh, 250,000 Romanian Jews, or 30% of the total Jewish population, were deprived of citizenship. And then in August 1940, to decrees by Carl II um, reactivated late 19th century anti-Semitic regulations. They stripped the entire Jewish population of uh, substantive political and civic rights, such as the right to settle in the countryside to, to buy rural property, access to employment in the army, as well as the right to bear Romanian names. Now, I want to finish by emphasizing the importance of uh, the establishment of the royal dictatorship. In 1937, we have the last free elections in Romania for more than 50 years. The next ones would be in 1990. What we have from 1937-38 on was a succession of various types of dictatorships. The royal dictatorship transformed over time, as I said, while the national uh, legionary regime and then uh, the um, regime um, by Ion Antonescu alone after he purged the legion, which I call a regime of integral nationalism, a short interregnum, and then uh, the communist takeover. Um, it's very interesting to think about the, uh, the relationship between these um, forms of dictatorship. Usually we think that they are hostile to each other because they are a bit different in character. But in fact, they also built on each other because they were cumulative departures from democracy. The process started with, uh, with the dictatorship and then continued, was deepened during the legionary rule and Antonescu's rule. And then, by the same token, it was very was easier by communists to take over a society that was already in uh, function as a uh, uh, dictatorship uh, and uh, was. Uh, the uh, economy
0: was autarchic, and so it was easier to, to take that uh, that over. Um, you, you mentioned at the beginning of the interview that a lot of historians confuse the legionary faith with ordinary orthodoxy, um, but you point out that actually it, quite a lot of it was really blasphemous from the perspective of mainstream Christianity. So how did the Romanian Orthodox Church react to this legionary faith?
1: Yeah, that's a very important issue. I discussed the relationship between the Legion and the Orthodox Church in the last uh, chapter of my book. I think this was a much-needed chapter, of course, but it was also among the most uh, difficult or challenging chapters to write. Um, I tried to approach the relationship between the Legion and the Romanian Orthodox Church from a new perspective, uh, trying to emphasize the similarities but also differences between an established church with a religious doctrine, a fascist organization with a political ideology. First, I make the point that neither the legion nor the church were monolithic organizations. So it's not um, a relationship between two parties, but uh, it's a relationship between multiple actors and multiple parties. In the case of the legion, one can differentiate at least five main categories of actors with a different attitude toward the religion. Um, You know, you have orthodox believers within the movement, probably they were in majority, of course. Then Greek Catholic followers who, although they were in, a mi- in the minority, were nevertheless leading figures. See, for example, the Bana. Then you have leaders with a strong religious education, either formal education, such as students in theology, or education received in their family. Look at Yon Mota, the second in rank in the legion, who was the son of a priest. But you also have lay-oriented intellectuals Many intellectuals, for example, in the AXA group, while, uh, which is very important in, uh, in um, elaborating the legionary ideology, well, most of these uh, intellectuals were primarily interested in attaining political rather than religious goals. And then uh, theology students, uh, well, they were under the Ministry of Education, but mostly priests and church officials who enrolled in the movement and thus could qualify as examples of clerical fascism. So, really, many actors here, and um, the visions of these actors were divergent and at times, I would say, even antithetical when it came to the, to the Church. Some followed the lay political agenda, while others favored the strong collaboration with the Orthodox Church. Some leaders regarded the Church as an integral but a subordinated element of the fascist political phase, while others thought that the legion's action should be no more than a political manifestation of the Church under the banner of Orthodoxism. And then... We have to look at the other side, the established churches. I say churches in plural because, yes, the most important partner here is the Romanian Orthodox Church. But I also try to look at the Greek Catholic Church. The two churches were um, referred to um, in the epoch as the sister churches or, or as two national churches. Uh, within the Orthodox Church, I try to differentiate between the attitude of the legion uh, to the legion of the um, Bucharest-based patriarchy of top hierarchs in the newly joined multi provinces and of lower hierarchs and priests at the local level. So the top echelon versus grassroots. These actors envision their relationship to the leg- legion quite differently due almost among, among um, other factors to their distinct political orientation, regional affiliation or also personal relations at the local level. Some Orthodox hierarchs favored the close alliance with the legion, while I saw it as a blasphemous organization which subverted the unity of the Church and its dogma. And so the, the interaction between the legion and the Orthodox Church really resulted in a complex set of entanglements, with profound consequences for both parties. I argue, therefore, that the analysis of the legion's relationship to the Church, should be multi layered and should account for diverse patterns of interaction among actors at the local, regional, and also national level. I try to underscore in particular novel forms of hybrid syncretism between fascism and orthodoxy created by this tangled relationship. And this is really striking. I mean, on the one hand, it generated very intellectual and theologian activists such as Alexandru Cantacuzino. Or, legionary theological journals such as Predania. I mean, Cantacuzino says, Well, I'm a lay person, but nevertheless, I do have the right to actually speak about the church and its doctrine. On the other hand, it also led to fanatical forms of clerical fascism. We see many pupils, well, students in theology who kept arms or even took part in uh, terrorist attacks. And likewise, you see many priests replace the Christian medals and decorations with the symbols of religion and even embrace violence. So I try to look in this complex chapter at the relationship between the Legion and the Orthodox Church at several levels. I look at the status of the Orthodox Church, interconfessional strife, the politicization of traditional religions into Romania, and then at the relationship between these two parties at high and grassroots level. I show how, at the time when the Orthodox Church was in a process of inner transformation and reorganization, the activity of the legion had a powerful impact upon the church as an institution, aggravating existing privileges and eventually splitting it into pro- and anti legionary factions. By and large, I identified two main axes of differentiation within the church. One split was between the attitude toward the legion of the rank and file priests versus the top leadership of the church, especially the one in Bucharest, and the other split was regional between the attitudes of regional metropolitan seats versus those of the central leadership in Bucharest. In general, we could say that ordinary priests at the local level, as well as bishops and metropolitans in the newly annexed multi provinces of Greater Romania, proved more receptive to regional reactions and propaganda than the Bucharest based establishment of the church, the patriarchy, for example who traditionally collaborate more closely with the political power of the day. Uh, The close cooperation but also the um, differences between the orthodox establishment and the legion, which I are amply highlighted in my book, are not surprising, I think. Despite the um, uneasy alliance, the legion and the orthodox church remained, in my view at least, two distinct communities of salvation, in four by two related yet ultimately conflicting doctrines. Although its message of theological inspiration attracted numerous lower rank prelates, from the point of view of the established church the region was ultimately a heretic movement. Building on the long tradition of Romantic Panigenetic Nationalism, the Legionaries put forward an original fascist faith of national salvation The writings were not mere exercising orthodox theology, but blended orthodox and fascist elements in a particular uh, weird mixing, I would say. Although inserted into a biblical matrix, the road to legionary salvation was quite original, and from the point of view of the official orthodox dogma, surely a blasphemy. It valued suffering, expiations, and above all, the ultimate sacrifice for the cause. Although these were arguably mainstream orthodox religious themes, the legionary motivations, means and goals were fundamentally different. First, legionaries adopted violence as a form of social regeneration and catharsis. Secondly, a significantly significant blasphemy was the substitution of Cordriano uh, to the same, his life trajectory and actions being a form of imitatio Christi that took place outside and even against the church. And yes, it's true that certain political moments the Orthodox leadership tried to use the legion to pressure political power. Overall, however, the cooperation between the church and the legion did not work out, generating more problems than gains. This collaboration was in fact harmful to church interests since the charismatic legitimization of the legion was competing with and even subverting the charismatic monopoly of the church. And I think the orthodox hierarchs understood early on that an alliance with the legion would be an unnecessary complication since the church could actually reach its goals in direct cooperation with the existing political power. So my conclusion is that the legion was important for the church, but in a different way than one would expect. The very existence of the legion as a threat to state authority uplifted the role of the Orthodox church as a critical element in anti-fascist or conservative authoritarian political strategies, uh, such as the one promoted by King Carol II or General Antonescu. And I think uh, it's clearly... The church featured better under Karl II's regime uh, and Germanos' regime than under the Legion's rule, because the Legion really started the process to actually reform the Orthodox Church, which was resisted um, by by the patriarch of that
0: time, Nikodim. Hmm. It's quite quite ironic um, and just breathtakingly complex. So to. To wrap up the podcast by taking us back to a point you made at the very beginning, this book's not just about Romanian history, but it's making a bigger argument um, that speaks to the field of fascist studies in general or of right-wing extremism. Um, What do you think scholars scholars of other movements or of right-wing extremism today have to learn from studying the history of the Legion? Yes, well,
1: this book is apparently at least a case study on the Legion. This is, in itself, I would say, a very captivating story. It's a story about the strong but uh, meteoric rise of fascism in an emerging democracy. My aim was to explain why Romania developed one of the strongest and most original fascist movements in interwar Europe. And yet I would say that the book does not only speak about Romania, but illuminates more general paths of radicalization to violent extremism, both past and contemporary. So I think we can learn a lot about uh, interpolitics by looking at Romania, other countries in Central Eastern Europe. We can learn a lot about radicalization. We can learn about um, what happens when there is a lack of rule of law and um, the spiral of violence with state authorities. Uh, we can learn about um, terrorism as is a new form of political violence and its international ramifications and um the impact of violence on society. Um, now in my introduction I actually have a hook into the whole story. I refer to Matthew Heimbach, who is the chairman of the US Traditionalist Worker Party uh, and co founder of Traditionalist Youth Network, who came to a court hearing in uh, Charlottesville in Indiana, dressed in a t shirt displaying the picture of Cornelio Zelacodrano. And so the fact that after more than a century, almost a century, the Legion's message and Quadranos' personality continue to inspire radical movements in Romania and the U.S. and in other parts of the world is surely more than a simple coincidence. And it's a topic that uh, historians have to deal with. Uh, obviously, we are living uh, through times of disruptive social transformations. The World War has become multipolar, but also more unstable. While climate change, rapid technological progress, global pandemics, the widening of EU inequalities, and an ever growing political polarization impact our lives more than ever. This challenges create insecurity, or retreat to local forms of collective identities and counter movements against globalization and supranational integration. It is therefore important, I think, to understand what stimulates radicalization to extremism in general and to fascism and radical right in in new societal contexts such as the one we live today. So my book points out to the structural conditions generating violent anti-systemic movements of protest, such as the existence of long-term regional or ethno-religious privileges, the economic popularization of segments of the middle classes, and the rise of economic nationalism of the titular nation during particular stages in the process of state-building and national consolidation, the lack of education for democracy and of well-functioning democratic and uh, media institution in unconsolidated or destabilized democracies. Uh, these factors, of course, uh, do not necessarily lead to authoritarianism or fascism in themselves. One should also factor in the agency of charismatic political entrepreneurs, managed to channel protest into a radical direction and to set in motion processes of mass mobilization and grassroots socialization in an extremist political culture. And so in my book I try to point out the responsibility of certain politicians but also journalists, university educators in encouraging this radicalization in channeling, and in channeling it toward violent, uh, extremist violence with the hidden aim of manipulating it for their own benefit This case shows how, in the lack of the rule of law, the harsh and often lawless confrontation between repressive state agencies and terrorist organizations can lead to a dark and frightful spiral of violence. I think this case study also speaks about um, how difficult de-radicalization is. I really looked at um, the trajectory of um, fascist uh, leaders or ordinary members uh, after World War II, especially in communist Romania. And we see throughout the book the uh, multiple failures of programs of de radicalization during Carl II, during uh, General Antonescu, and also during the communist uh, regimes. So I think uh, it's an open question how we can reintegrate, is it possible to reintegrate former fascists, former extremists into the um, body politics, and uh, how can we de radicalize uh, one? And so, um, well into the 21st century as a historian of comparative interpolitics. I often have a vexing sense of deja vu in European and global politics. And I would say also a saddening or maybe indeed infuriating uh, impression that present authoritarian leaders seem to learn more effectively from, from history about how to undermine democracy and build authoritarian regimes then their democratic counterparts learn on how to counter political
0: radicalization. That's a really depressing conclusion. Um, but that's about all we have time for today. So thank you very much for sharing this book with us. Um, and hopefully we will learn something from it and um, we can move forward slowly in combating fascism and restoring some sort of order to our world.
1: Thank you as well, Roland, for having me.